You're listening to The Conservative Conscience. In Washington, politicians are full of half-truths and hot air. The Conservative Conscience is here to help you cut through the rhetoric and noise and explore the politically right way to think about the issues. You'll dive into one of the most insightful conservative minds in America. Conservative Review Senior Editor Daniel Horowitz. Using pure common sense and ignoring the group think, Daniel breaks down the major issues in Washington. You are now entering the Conservative Conscience. And welcome back to the Conservative Conscience here at Conservative Review. It is March 8th, Friday, at your truth-telling headquarters here in Central Maryland. And I'm telling you guys, this week really needs to go away. I don't know about you, but um, I'm getting tired of all this truth, all this truth-telling. Not of all this winning. I'm getting tired of telling the truth. By the way, you guys are the best. Um, Some of your creative messages, your emails, your tweets at me. One of you sent a note to me that you're torn between wanting to promote the truth but not wanting to be the bearer of bad news because usually what I'm uh, sending you guys is bad news. But look, you know, I I get it. You're, You're sick of hearing the truth. You're sick of hearing bad news. But we got to create a critical mass of people willing to tell the truth. Because frankly, the problem that we all have here is that if we're focusing on the wrong thing or if we're not even understanding when we're losing and we think we're winning in a place where we're losing, then there's no point to doing what we're doing. Okay, I didn't mean for the little rhyme there, but... Uh, that's just the simple reality of the world we live in. Conservatism at its core is studying the world as it exists, not as you want it to exist. Being hooked on political morphine inherently is not conservative. To think that we're winning. And, And today, I want to demonstrate to you measures of how we're not winning on the key issues, tying together some of the news on, yes, the two most important issues, immigration and the courts, because within those issues, it ensconces every other issue that's important too, ties back to one of the two or both of those connected. And if you understand the latest news, you'll understand why we're all in denial, why we're focusing our efforts on the wrong thing, why everything gets back to a source of one thing, and why until we deal with that one thing, everything we do is kind of useless, and we're just spinning our wheels. Tall order to accomplish in one day, but let's see what we can do here. I want to start today our first uh, piece of evidence to admit to the, onto the record. A statement from Joe Biden from 1993, and we'll link to this in show notes, a minute clip of Joe Biden on the Senate floor in 1993 railing against the week on crime agenda, and he said, quote, I don't care why someone is a malfactor. We have an obligation to carton them off from the rest of society. Now, what what does this have to do with anything? Well, why do you think this came out now? Well, obviously, hell has no fury like Democrat opposition research. 
And now that he's running for president, well, other Democrats in a primary are going to bring up clips to show that someone's not sufficiently left-wing enough. And that, that, that's why it you know, was in the news very briefly. But the reason why I focused on it was because there was a certain feeling of, of, of sadness that fell over me when I watched it because it just reminded me of the fact how not everyone used to be whacked out of their minds, how even people that are still around in the political arena today as liberal Democrats, once upon a time when I even remember politics a little bit, still believed in certain principles of sovereignty, security, civil society, even if they were a little liberal on the role of government and certain fiscal issues, they still at least understood that. And how now there's not a single elected Republican or outside conservative organization who will speak the way Joe Biden did in 1993. And that's a sense of how we've all moved over. What we've been talking about the last number of days and weeks, this frog in the boiling pot of water dynamic where we get acclimated gradually but relentlessly to the leftward shift on all our values, and we legitimize every temperature increase rather than jumping out and saying, no, not anymore, we're going to reverse this trend. Instead, we just accept it. We accept it and we accept it. And day by day, week by week, more of our liberties are whittled away. More liberties are granted to illegal invaders. More of our culture, our history, our traditions are ruled unconstitutional. And we just don't don't say anything about it. We get used to it. As it relates to immigration and the courts, as you know, to this day, I cannot get off of the thesis of my book because everything keep, keeps coming back to it. That either we are a self-governing people that determine the policies for ourselves through appropriate separation of powers, either we determine who makes up the future orientation of this country, or we have an unelected oligarchy of a highly insular legal profession that sets the rules and determines everything and at any given moment could throw out 200 years of history, tradition, natural law, case law, sovereignty of a nation state, you name it, and just at any moment create a new right for their pet issues that will create policy problems cultural problems, fiscal problems that we cannot and will not recover from if we don't deal with this. So let, let, let's talk first about how this relates to the border. We have put all our eggs in one basket. What does success look like? What does winning look like? Building the wall. That, that, that's everything. 
That, that's pretty much what everyone in conservative media will talk about. Now, never mind the fact that even when it comes to building the wall, none of them were ever focusing on the true linchpins to getting the wall funded when we had control of the House and the Senate and there were roughly seven budget bills where we had that opportunity and I was one of the only ones yelping about it every single time. So never mind that they're always a day late, a dollar short. But I want to explain to you the mechanics on hopefully a deeper level than we've ever done. And I'm going to try to do this carefully and in a way that you know you understand it. So I don't want to miss any steps here. Why the wall is so beside the point at this at this juncture. Why, if we're going to expend our political capital on one issue, it has to be on the conservative movement in in the media, in culture, in policy, and pressuring the administration to ultimately come out and delegitimize judicial supremacy, at least at a lower court level, at least on immigration cases, at least as it relates to universal injunctions of a single district judge. There's got to be some place we got to start from. And why that is the source of every problem, every single problem at the border and really almost every problem elsewhere. So we're going to focus on all of that. Let me start off, as always, with an analogy. And I'm sorry you know, for any cancer survivor. I don't want anyone to feel... Um, you know, like I'm, I'm belittling anything, and I, I don't like using these analogies, but it's too good of an analogy to, to pass up because I think it really makes clear the point. A lot of people are very confused about, well, Daniel, are, are you saying you don't support a border wall or a border wall doesn't help, it helps, it doesn't help? And it's it's a complicated question, but it's really a simple question at the same time, or the answer is quite simple. A border wall helps if we have a border. A border wall doesn't help if we don't have a border. Until recently, fairly recently in our history, we had a border. We didn't have infrastructure enough, technology, assets, you know, the sensors and the drones and the cameras, um, the border enough border patrol agents, and then enough fencing to properly enforce our border, but we had a border. So for most of my career, until fairly recently, covering the immigration issue, among many other things I was pushing, I was very into pushing the border wall. Okay? I even wrote, and I I can't find that tweet. I'll try to dig it up, but it was a male reporter. I'm forgetting his name. But um, a reporter for the AP once referred to my piece on the effectiveness of border walls as the most compelling case he's ever read for a border wall. But again, that was before this critical stage that has been building for a while but has culminated recently – into the creation of constitutional rights for 7.8 billion people in the world that anyone pretty much could come here and we're done and and that's it. So I want to explain to you how 
insane it is when you understand the truth, not the talking points, but the mechanics of what is going on at our border, the mechanics of what is going on in the courts and in the interior of our country, and what those court rulings cause at our border in turn, it will become very clear to you what a joke it is to focus just simply on a border wall or really to focus on it at all without focusing on the 800-pound gorilla in the room, which is judicial supremacy. So back to the analogy, if someone comes in with stage three to stage four cancer, now it depends on the type of cancer obviously in terms of the severity of you know, you know, stage four pancreatic cancer is is is, is terrible. Um, but you know, other other cancers are, are are more curable. But you get my point by saying stage three to four, meaning it's very critical. You got to address it. But th- there's still time to hopefully defeat the cancer. So at that stage, if I would tell you, you know, is it important to get treatments, chemotherapy, radiation, um? Well, you'd look at me like I'm off the wall. What do you mean? Is it important? Of course, it's important. Of course, I mean you can't do without it. I mean that that that's the 800 pound gorilla in the room. Might not work for everything, but it's certainly going to combat the cancer. Okay. Now, let's say five minutes later, that same patient takes out a knife, and he starts slitting his throat and his wrists. What would you call someone at that moment? who is obsessively focused on cancer treatments. You'd say he's he's nuts. He's out of his mind because the patient will die in three seconds anyway. So, you know, it's not to diminish the importance of the cancer treatments. They're sure important. You're, you're going to need that to survive in the long run. But right now, you're... The, the severity and imminence of the problem of the slitting of the wrist makes it that any second you're not focusing on that, much less completely ignoring it and only focusing on cancer treatments, you're just it's, – it's sheer and utter lunacy. I think you get what I'm saying here. I, I believe that is a perfect analogy to explain the dichotomy of when and in what case the border wall is important. And let me bring it out with a story that I haven't written up. I mentioned yesterday, and I want to go into more depth uh, right now to bring out this point. On Wednesday night, more than 700 more illegals, it's happening every few hours, were taken into custody in El Paso. Um, Recently, they've been coming mainly in the El Paso sector, which is New Mexico. This is El Paso proper of Texas, and... They also caught some sex offenders that were trying to come in while these guys were were tying them down. It was several groups of 100, 250 at a time, and then several smaller groups that added up total to, to 700 people. And there's nothing new with that. But what caught my eye was something very interesting. interesting. I said, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Isn't that where we have the much-vaunted El Paso border wall that Trump is – you know, talking about how successful it was and how we need um, to replicate that, right? That's the whole enchilada. The whole debate kind of surrounds around uh, 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 it. It it um, 
it, it all revolves around that one point. So what happened to the wall? And then I read in the CBP press release, agents apprehended a group of 112 illegal aliens at the border wall, at the border wall near downtown just after midnight. Now, usually when I read this stuff, I see, um, you know, different variations of a story that either they came in at a gap in the fence, an opening in the fence that's you know deliberate gate, um, right at a point of entry, or in some cases, like we see in Yuma, in particular, the Border Patrol has put out videos of this where they're downright coming over on different ramps and ladders that are given to them by the cartels. But in this case, it didn't, it didn't say that. And it almost sounded to me like this is it that they were just behind the fence so then i asked myself well how did they get here then if if it doesn't say they climbed over they usually say that and it doesn't say they um they went around it would say like they got in at a certain gap it just kind of says they were behind the fence and now they're here well, how did they get here? So I, I put in a media inquiry to CBP uh, Press, and I says, could you tell me, what did they climb over the fence, or did they come in at the opening? And he said, they generally cross the riverbed from Juarez and walk up to the south side of the border wall and wait for agents to pick them up. And that's what I was driving at. That's what I thought it meant. I, I was thinking to myself... So you mean to tell me that even with a wall, the degree of lawfare that this administration is willing to tolerate is so extreme that even if we have a wall and they don't wind up getting in, but they're sitting on the other side of it, might not even be saying anything like shouting, credible fear, credible fear. They're just there. We're not even going to check. Are they Central Americans or Mexicans? I mean, we presume they're mainly Central Americans now, but you know, like keep in mind, even under the insanity of the lawfare, it's only it's, it's the Mexicans were not required. So maybe you ought to ought to check. But no, no, no. Anyone who comes up, we have to send the agents to the other side of the fence and schlep these guys into our country. So. I tried to pin him down because I wanted to – he didn't say it exactly. The only words on the record I got from it, from this uh, um, press uh, official was, quote, they generally cross the riverbed from Juarez and walk up to the south side of the border wall and wait for agents to pick them up. So I asked him. I said, look, would anyone be able to discuss on background the process – for dealing with people behind a fence. In other words, if it is the position of the government that we must respond to any migrants lining up outside of a fence, then how would a fence help if we feel compelled to go around it and go get them? And it was just and he wouldn't he wouldn't, you know, tell me anything. He just said, "Look look at um, you know, McAleen and 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 the DHS secretary's uh 
testimony. Did you see their testimony? Uh, that that would shed light on what you're talking about. And I said, yeah, I, I know, I know what you're talking about. But like, you know, what does that have to do with anything? Well, just t- take a look at page eight. So I look at page eight, and you know, it discusses the general problems that they say with well, all these statutory deficiencies and loopholes that they use and yada yada. I was like, I said, yeah, I, I know that in general, but it doesn't address this specific question I'm asking. That you know, that's when okay, they get over. There is no wall. They wind up getting in. But what if they're not in and they're on the other side of the fence? Are you saying it's still our position that um, that uh, even not at a point of entry, even when there's a fence, there's no opening, it's totally closed, that based on legal guidance you're getting, that agents have to actively get them from behind the fence? And is that indeed what happened at El Paso? And all he said was, Daniel – if you, it, I believe you are asking why this is happening even with a wall, Commissioner McAleen provides reasons. <laughs> and then I realized, like, you know, he's basically saying, yeah, you're right, but he can't say that literally. Because if you guys are smart enough, you should already pick up on a very severe reality that comes out from this. A very severe reality. If this is indeed true, which I'm almost positive it is, do you know what this means? This means, folks, you could build an impervious greatest wall ever from Brownsville to San Diego without any interruptions, and it could be... As high as as outer space. And we are told that if there's people gathering on the other side of it, we have acquiesced to the perception of the most radical, lowest common denominators, foreign shopped lower court judges bastardizing our most sacred constitutional and statutory provisions that we will downright go and get them. You understand that means there is zero purpose to a wall and it is not the point at all and it will not stop anything, at least in terms of illegal immigration. To be clear, obviously in terms of the cartel activity and some of the criminal activity, the drug running that certainly – will not surrender to an agent, don't want to be seen by an agent, and need to get in clandestinely, that would help. But again, remember, we're not building a wall to the stratosphere from Brownsville to uh, San Diego. We're building, you know, at best, a couple hundred miles of strategic fencing if Trump indeed winds up successfully going through with this. But you know what the interesting thing is? We all know the courts are going to lock it up anyway, so the point is, if you have one executive action you're willing to stand behind, go to the source of the problem, which is not the lack of building a wall. It's that we feel that we have to bring in anyone from 7.8 billion people who come here, and the source of that problem is the lower courts. You can't get around it. I, I spoke to Jason Jones, our, our resident Texas border expert, expert, and I spoke with Mark Morgan, 
the head of Border Patrol um, in 2016. Of course, I can't get any official there now because they just won't talk to you in, in a clear clear way. But they 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 said that that what I'm saying is is definitely true because it's worse than you think. There's a dirty little secret here, and, and look, it makes sense. But but we got to understand the reality of what we're dealing with and what's going to help and what's not. There's a dirty little secret here. Any fencing we build, by definition, is recessed north into our territory. It's not right on the line. We recess in it for various reasons. It's very evident in this area on in the Texas border where you have the Rio Grande River. Rio Grande River, you need the riverbed. It has it ebbs and flows, so you can't – anyway, they're not going to put the fence right where the watermark is. So by definition, they're landing on our soil behind – they're, they're, meaning they're kept out, so to speak. They're out. They can't get in. I mean, unless they find a way to climb it. But they officially are on our soil. Okay. So if we're going to agree to the notion that they have the right to come here, and once they have the right to come here without our permission, we have to hear them out. And there's nothing we can do to prevent them from doing it and that we can't send the military out to prevent them from landing. Then we're done. We're done as a nation. Do do you understand what I mean? It's not like, oh, the wall will work for this amount or that amount. It will work for a zero amount. If a wall keeps people out but your government brings them in from behind the wall, then what's the point of the wall? Now, I believe in San Diego, it's almost almost near the border, but even then there's always going to be a few feet to play games with. But almost every other part of the border, it's not. So don't quote me if it on this point if it's going to be 100% of the border is going to be like that, but it's certainly going to be the overwhelming majority of it. You're going to have that dynamic. And frankly, frankly, they are so just obsequious to the courts that I even wonder if they were on Mexican territory. Let's just say the, the border wall was right on the border. I'm not – it could very well be they'd take them anyway. They'd say they have to do it too. And if, and if they don't say it now and they would try to implement that, let's just say – the courts will make it up anyway and, and, and say, say now that you have to do it. You have to understand, the courts are not coming from any legal system, even a liberal legal system. They have one rule. We win, you lose. We want a specific outcome. We want – see, by definition, by definition, anything that would help to secure our border – to disincentivize, demagnetize our border, the courts will oppose. By definition, it has nothing to do with statute or this, that, or that. They will make it up as needed. As ne- they grow as needed. That's why they come up with new ideas. We clamp down on this, or illegal immigrants are using this avenue, so we need to then enact this policy. They will adapt as needed. There is not a shred of jurisprudence behind this. It's not like in the Warren days where there was some sort of method to their madness. There's nothing. 
which is my point is this. My point is this. You can't run. You can't hide. You can't crawl under their legs and come up with something clever. Daniel, Daniel, what do we do? What's your what's your advice? There is nothing a person could concoct that will possibly keep us safe and stop illegal immigration without the ACLU obtaining from any random court a shutdown of that policy or an attempted shutdown. Again, they can't shut down. They have no power to do that. They have no enforcement mechanism. It, it shocks me how few people realize this. I was speaking to a friend yesterday, and he was like, well, won't they send out the marshals? I was like, the marshals are the president. It's DOJ. And it's not by accident. Hamilton said in Federalist 78 they weren't given that power precisely because that would have been horrible if they would ha- be able to issue a ruling but then they had the power to enforce it because they want that separation of powers. That if the courts do something egregious, at some point the executive branch needs to say, no, you cannot do this and we will, you cannot force us to do this. There's nowhere to run or hide. There's no way to go. Look, I understand that politically, because of the cowardice of this phony conservative movement for a half a century, agreeing to the premise of judicial supremacy, no matter what, no matter how, no matter how divorced from our history and tradition and laws the courts were, no matter how destructive and deleterious in terms of the consequences, a, a policy that decision uh, was made, we would, we would just legitimize it. So it's hard for a president to come and, and go from zero to 100 in one shot and, and, and to start pushing back fully against this. I get it. I get it. But I am here to tell you there is no other choice. There is no other choice, and the courts are getting so extreme and radical – And the consequences are so evident now that he has the most political capital he'll ever have to explain this to the public. This is what you need the bully pulpit for. Let me explain what I'm talking about. There'd be one thing if there's 30 things we can do on immigration. There's 30 things we want to do. There's 30 things the law allows us to do. There's 30 things our constitution allows us to do. And the courts screw with two of them, two of the 30. And we know it's completely illegitimate. We know they're wrong. We know ideally, as you guys know as constitutionalists, separation of powers and other branches, when they believe they have the law on their side, have an obligation, particularly when it relates to something that is dealing with foreign affairs and the sovereignty in our border and you're the commander in chief, and it's broadly consequential. It's not some sort of individual case, you know, whatever that's more in the, within the purview of the judiciary. You have an obligation to push back. But God forbid, I'm not saying that. I understand. I understand. You say, look, Daniel, I, I, I get it. It's not really right, but it's kind of hard. Let's try to push Congress to quote fix those statutes. But that's not what's going on here. We get. 
like frogs in boiling water, we, 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 again, and, and this is part of not realizing the ground we lose, the ground the other side gains when we don't even realize how quickly they gain it. This, this theory of relativity and motion, political motion, when it's subtle, but they're, they're winning 50-year battles overnight in the quiet court cases that no one even follows except for me, but they wind up determining everything. We get so caught up in the specifics. Well, you know, like this statute says, well, you got to hear the application for credible fear. And even though we know it's BS, but, but you have to at least you know, deal with it. And then, but there's no bed space and because they're kids, so you got to release them. And we get so into their game, like we get played by it. And we get so into each individual case. We're missing the forest from the trees. We don't realize what has happened here. They have foreclosed on all 30 – it's a made-up number, but you get my point – all 30 examples, any and every way to ever solve the illegal immigration problem, to ever defend our sovereignty, to ever rid ourselves of the problem of illegal immigration. They have foreclosed every avenue, and to the extent we open up another one, they will close it because it's not about, oh, the statute wasn't written properly or maybe the statute means this. It's about they are engaging in civil disobedience against our immigration laws and against the the judicial branch's own case law for the first 200 years of this country's history to the point that they are now creating – we don't realize what they're doing. Most people haven't studied immigration law and immigration history like I have, so they're missing the point here. For years, there has been a catchphrase. For years, the left has been frustrated. They've been able to accomplish everything in the courts, rights to gay marriage, rights to an abortion, rights to affirmative action, rights to all sort of voting anomalies, rights to all sorts of racialist uh, inequality agenda under the sickening guise of, of equality. But the one thing that survived even the Warren era of craziness was the plenary power doctrine. The notion that as a sovereign nation, there are no rights to come here or to remain here if you got here against the national will. Any process or decisions that are made for who we let in and who we remove as long as they're not a citizen is completely left up to the two political branches of government, and there is no judicial review, there is no judicial oversight, there is no access to the courts unless Congress grants them that access into statute, and and that is it. Everyone understood that because if you don't understand that, you're done as a nation. You don't have a sovereign nation. As the courts have said before, it's rooted in the most ancient principles. The most ancient, ancient principles. So um, that's what we don't realize when we say let's fix the statute. Now look, if we had the votes of all four Congress reaffirming their intent, just the messaging of it, that in itself kind of fights back against the courts. You're kind of showing your your intent. We're missing the point. 
the legal profession has been wanting to pull the trigger on what they call conferring constitutional norms on immigrants, even illegal immigrants. And again, let's be very careful. When we talk about constitutional norms, constitutional rights and due process and access to the courts on immigrants, we don't mean that if you're an immigrant and someone beats you up or you do a crime and we're going to lock you up for, uh, on criminal charges that you don't have rights. It means immigrants having constitutional rights in the context of immigration proceedings, in context of the right to be or remain here, in the context of, of litigating against a deportation. Right? That is, that is the clear point. They have pulled the trigger on that. The legal profession and much of the conservative profession has agreed to it. The lower courts have agreed to it. The Supreme Court never did, but they're like very slow. For every 50 cases that they poke holes in, they'll take up three of them, takes years of irrevocable damage. Irrevocable damage. And then even when they finally take them up, guess what? There's 50 other avenues for the ACLU and others and all the thousands of Soros litigators, Soros-funded litigators, to poke holes and drive a truck through our laws and constitution. And um, whether it's forcing them to be allowed in initially, gumming up the works, allowing them to litigate indefinitely, and that's how we lost our country. That's where we are today. So if you're going to start legitimizing every time they do this, oh, we got to fix the statute, you're missing the point. At some point, and, and, then, and then likewise on policy for focused on the wall, you're missing the point. This is why Trump needs to go after one thing and one thing only. If there's one thing you could expend your capital on, he needs to give a speech and say everything I'm saying. And like I'm going to explain at the end of the show, I'm not asking that he do it categorically in every case, even the Supreme Court. I'm saying in a few of the most harmful cases, when it's clearly insidiously form shop district judge, nationwide injunctions invoke Clarence Thomas to say that they're unconstitutional. And that in itself will force the Supreme Court to more expeditiously and categorically take it up. What am I building towards? Those of you who follow me on social know what I'm building towards, and that's the biggest news of yesterday. There was earth-shattering news yesterday, and I mean earth-shattering. The biggest news story of the day. You know, a lot of the times it's very subjective. There's a lot of important things going on, and I don't want to disparage people for focusing on them because there are other important issues I wanted to get to. I don't know if I'm going to have time. Many things did happen yesterday. But there is one thing and one thing alone that was earth-shattering. And that in itself proves everything I am telling you today on immigration, everything I'm telling you on the courts, and everything I have been saying since I wrote my book. That basically, we are up against the edge of the cliff, and there's no choice but to stand and fight. Because if we don't, we're done, 
And the only way we could ever do anything else anyway is by fighting through this. The Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals yesterday did something that 50 years worth of debate in Congress and the president couldn't would likely not be able to accomplish, not politically. You know, there's a movement, the Convention of the States. I know a lot, we have a lot of listeners who are, who are part of that movement um, to try to get certain constitutional amendments passed. And it, it's, it's, a, it's a generational project. Do you understand that, and this happens every day, every few hours. I can't even talk about all of the cases. I don't have time but I see most of them. And if you did, you would have a different perspective on what we're dealing with. As Josh Hammer mentioned on the show yesterday, he's like, he's like, heck, I don't even see all this. Well, my, my colleagues never see this. That's why they don't see what I see. That's why they don't have the view I have. Because they're not grounded in the, what is actually going on. They amended our Constitution beyond belief. For the first time ever, they created a constitutional right to habeas corpus. Meaning, what does habeas corpus mean? mean it, literally, here's the, the corpse. You have to have you, – you can't just grab someone for a crime and lock them up. You have to be able to put them in front of a judge. They have to be able to be placed in front of a judge to, to make some sort of claim or case. There's habeas corpus rights to – Illegal immigrants. That is the. I, I want to just give you the outcome to make it very clear because I know I sometimes get in the weeds. Maybe some of you might get a little lost and and not pick up all the points. But that's the upshot of it. See, often often they're in individual cases deep in the weeds, and you know people get confused. It, it doesn't sound so big. Oh, so in the context of of post-removal proceedings of this type of case of the INA, you know, no, no, no. That's what they created. They created that right. So what specifically happened? If you could picture the fire at our border created initially by this very court, the Ninth Circuit, mainly the Ninth Circuit, what the Ninth Circuit did yesterday was create a bonfire out of it. Rather than putting out the fire, they took the very element that is fueling this insanity and they brilliantly foreclosed the final avenue to stop it. You don't even realize it. No one realizes what they did. There is a reason why the ACLU referred to this as historical. They said it's truly – I'm paraphrasing here. I don't have the press release in front of me, but something like it's truly hard to overstate the magnitude and significance of how historic this is, and they are not exaggerating. See, the left gets it. They get when progress is being made or not. We don't. Our, our side sleeps. So what they, what they wound up doing – is um, so again, what's what's happening at the border? It's all driven by bogus asylum that 
Anyone could just come, claim a credible fear. 90% of them are approved, not given asylum, but they're approved of credible fear, meaning so they're admitted and not deported. That's the road to catch and release. They flood our zone with so many of them that A, we don't have bed space to even hold them. And then the sheer magnitude creates such a backlog that it takes forever to get to before a judge. And B, most of them are coming now with kids. So the other vermin judicial rulings um, said you have to release them even if you do have bed space after 20 days. And then you have to release the parents with them. So basically everyone who's going to come is going to come like that, and that's what's happening now. And it's, it's, it's just a death spiral at our border. We, we've spoken about this many times, and I think by now you guys understand that. Now, even though eventually when they go before the immigration judge, they see that they're not asylees. They're not persecuted politically for their beliefs or ethnic or religious groups. It's just not what's happening. There are a bunch of people coming from poverty that want to come to America. Surprise, surprise. That we have opened our door to the entire third world, not just Central America. They're coming from all over the world now. So that's what's happening. What the Ninth Circuit did yesterday is you might ask, well, Daniel, what if USCIS just started denying credible fear, just not approving them and saying, look, prima facie, you're fraud, and just start denying them? Now, even under current law, Congress has given them a path the process that Congress gives – again, due process as it relates to illegal immigrants or anyone seeking entry into our country is whatever Congress says it is. And what Congress says it is is that you have a right to an immigration judge, which is not a judge. They're really an, an administrative official working for DOJ, um, and you have a right to that. And even then, if you get denied, you could appeal. There's an appellate administrative court called the BIA, um, and that is run by what's called Eeyore, not to be mixed up with the the donkey and Winnie the Pooh, um, Executive Office of Immigration Review. That That is part of the Department of Justice. That is not the judicial branch. That is the executive branch of government. So they still have a heck of a lot, but once then you could put them into expedited removal procedures and finally get rid of them. Meaning, really a sane country is anyone who comes here, if we see at the face of it, you're not an asylee, you're out of here in three seconds. Okay? None of us should be on the hook for it. But nonetheless, this is the convoluted nonsense. It's already convoluted enough. What, it, what the Ninth Circuit said is now, even if you're denied, you now have the right to – Access to the Article Three courts to appeal it, which means given their dockets, it will you could appeal for years because then once you have access to the district court, then you have access to the appeals court, and, and, and we're done. We will never get rid of a single person. This is always the tactic of immigration lawyers, delay, delay, delay. So that means even if you don't abscond – and we finally get you before a judge, and he's like, this is garbage. And an administrative judge, he can now appeal that to the, the um, Article Three courts. Or if on the front end we just deny your petition, you could appeal it. 
and you're here indefinitely, and we can't detain you. That is the gist of what the court said. I don't have enough brain capacity, mouth motion, and energy, and time to give over the severity of the consequences and and how many points of mine this proves. But let me try to go through a few of them. As it relates to what we're talking about, about what to do at the border, you understand what just happened here. They didn't say, oh, statute means this. They said the statute is unconstitutional, that it's unconstitutional for Congress not to give access to the courts for illegals. Think about that for a moment. So everyone's like, okay, uh, we need to fix the statute. No, but they are t- they re- they, we have the statute. And what's even more is think about it. Not only are they striking down, so to speak, I hate that term because it's not true, but attempting to strike down an immigration statute by Congress. This is not Trump. This is not the administration. This is Congress. This particular immigration statute is what's called a jurisdiction stripping statute. It's 1252E2, 8 U.S.C. 1252E2 of the Immigration Nationality Act, or that's the code derived from the INA, explicitly says that there is no review, that courts are not allowed to review it, except if there's a claim that he's a citizen or LPR status, something like that, but you can't you know, review um, just you know, if you're clearly an illegal just coming in, and we you know you're denied by DOJ um, and DHS the the status, then then you're out of here. And indeed, the district judge, the federal district judge, California Obama appointee, was like, dude, I I can't hear this case. Congress said I can't hear it. Congress has full power to strip jurisdiction. And here, Ninth Circuit comes in and says no. For the first time in American history, they have created a constitutional right to habeas corpus for illegal aliens in the context of litigating against the deportation, against their immigration status. They are striking down a jurisdiction stripping provision in immigration law that was passed in 1996. Everyone keeps saying, Daniel, we need to fix the laws. I tell them, make a list of what we want to do and 75% of it. I have news for you. We passed it in 1996. They've either been ignored by the executive branch, struck down by the courts, or both. This provision was passed in 1996 precisely because of this problem, precisely because they didn't want the courts to be doing this, precisely because they wanted to preserve our sovereignty. And a court is now saying Congress can't do this. Okay? Congress can't do this. So you understand, like we keep doing this. Um, the court said you have to castrate yourself. Okay, Daniel, they said that's what the Constitution means. If you want to change it, you got to change the Constitution. You need to amend the Constitution. No, they're amending the Constitution. Again, if they do it on one or two things, I get it. But they're doing it not just statutorily. Constitutionally, let me take this slow. Some of you get it very quickly. Some of you, this is new to. I want to explain it. Statutorily means 
when I say the action that the administration is doing, the policy they're enacting is against statute. I'm reading statute like this. So then if that's what the court says, theoretically, you could come and just in Congress pass a new statute to allow the administration to do what you want them to do. But if the court goes what's called the constitutional route and says, no, this act is unconstitutional, the law, the statute is unconstitutional, they're saying that you can't do this. Now, obviously, you you guys are probably shouting, so tell the court to go to hell. Exactly. That's what our founders envisioned. But we are told and we're countenancing this notion that every last thing they do – Oh, someone could just come here and bop out a baby against their will. He's a citizen. If you want to change it, you got to uh, – it's in the Constitution. You got to amend the Constitution. Uh, they get to be counted in the, in, the, in the census. California gets an extra five seats. There's nothing you can do about it. If you want to change it, amend the Constitution. Anyone who comes here has a right to claim something. If you want to amend it, you know, sanctuary cities, they have a right to federal grants. While they're thwarting federal immigration law, if you want to change that, you got to amend the Constitution. They're going the constitutional route in a lot of these cases. And again, it's not clever. It's not in the weeds because they have a certain reading of the Constitution, reading of a statute. It's 100% a political agenda that they want to foreclose on any immigration enforcement. Let me explain to you the profundity of how we are so behind the eight ball on this stuff. We are so distracted, we're so focused on the wrong thing. Our entire click-servative movement is focused on Alexandria Cortez and people like that. Oh, they want to have the Green New Deal. They want to abolish ICE. Oh, we can't let the Democrats win. They might abolish ICE. I have news for you. The Democrats, as a majority party, are scared to do that because they know the public will kill them over it. But the courts are abolishing ICE, not necessarily the personnel literally, but they're abolishing their purview and their ability to do anything. One by one, limb by limb, they're shredding our, our sovereignty, our immigration laws. Stuff that, that would take 50 years of political capital for Democrats to enact in Congress. And, 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 and even if they did, we would win landslide elections and could potentially turn it back. Here they do it overnight, and no one knows about it because part of the beauty is – part of the beauty of what they do is what, what we're talking about is not like there's a, like all of a sudden, boom, a Roe v. Wade, an Obergefell. No. They have these like in-the-weeds cases like this. You would never know about it, and it only applies to one person at the time, but it's done deliberately to drive a truck through um, – because they have a real movement. So their legal and political teams work seamlessly. So the political ops are like, okay, we have an amazing strategy to get millions of illegals to come to stay in the country. And then, and then once you do that, you magnetize more to come. If you, can, if you guys can go and get a court ruling that they have a right to litigate this and that aspect of, of, of the law, any critical constitutional right. Once you do that, it creates a gush and a flow using that magnet, and then people are like, what the heck? What's going on here? And then they say, it's the law. There's nothing we can do. And they're like, what do you mean it's the law? The court said there was uh, yada yada v. yada yada um, in you know, 2012. 
They're like, what? I never knew about that. But then it's already legitimized. It's already like, what do you think is happening right now with the baseline stuff with asylum at the border? No one ever heard of these court opinions except for a couple of us that I, I, I wrote about at the time. But they set these little bombs and then, and then they go off. They create these gushing flows. We deal with the consequences. And then by then it's like, oh, it's, it's, it's already, you know, this is law. What can you do? That's why the administration needs to stand up now. This is what they're doing. We are on the cusp of not one, but but a multiple cases that together will do to sovereignty, immigration, and our society. What Obergefell did to marriage, what Roe did to life, and so many other cases. So yes, there's a circuit split. They tried to do this in the Third Circuit and a couple of years ago. The Third Circuit rejected it. So it's likely the Supreme Court will take it up. Yes, it's likely we'll win it, but I'm not confident about Gorsuch. I don't know. But again, we're missing the point. See, Trump thinks, all right, it's stupid. I'll just go to the Supreme Court. Couple things. Number one, a similar case happened. Rodriguez v. Jennings, I spoke about it a couple times, where they allowed repeated bond hearings for these criminal aliens being apprehended by ICE. More, more dealing with interior enforcement, not at the border, but interior um, enforcement. And it was an insane Ninth Circuit ruling, and we all knew it would be reversed. But there were four years of the worst criminal aliens that were let go. We lost track of them, and there have been known cases – I wrote about one in my book – that went on to commit murder afterwards. Irrevocable harm. Four years it took to get relief from the Supreme Court on Rodriguez v. Jennings. It takes forever. This might be a little quicker, but maybe even next year. But still, that, that, that's a lot of harm, a year's worth of gushing flow from this. But it's more than that. As you well know, Clarence Thomas is the only one who writes categorically. The other ones, hem and haw. They don't say – they don't reassert the plenary power doctrine. All these other – they come back with 50 other angles. When we finally put a lid on that, they have 50 other angles that they've already done. That's the point. At some point – Everyone's always like, Daniel, what do you do? The court said, the court said. I'm like, why is the court the starting point and the end point? Congress said. Congress said they have no jurisdiction. They have full power over immigration, and they have full power over jurisdiction stripping, and certainly the mixture of the two. At some point, you got to assert that. At some point, Trump needs to call a press conference with his attorney general and make this case to the public and say, I have to follow the law and the Constitution as we know it. But that's the beauty. This is – aside from this specific issue of immigration, I want you guys to understand now why I always tell you the capacity of a good judge to do good is nowhere near the capacity of a bad judge to do bad. And if you understand the momentum and velocity and the culture of the legal profession and the lower courts and the one way – and the heads they win, tails they win, one-way street, one-way ratchet, if you understand all these concepts I've been talking about for years – 
You'll understand why I am right when I say no amount of appointing better judges will ever stop this once you agree to the premise of their game instead of using all your political capital for just one thing to delegitimize judicial supremacism and to stop listening to these cases. And that is because they only have to win one time. We have to win every single time the way they rigged the game. They have a first and goal at our one-yard line except there's no four downs. They have an unlimited amount of tries. We have to block the pass every time. See, you'd be like, well, aren't we going to win? We won for 200 years. They didn't create a right to habeas corpus for illegal immigrants to break into our country. Now they did. They could always discover new rights, as, as Anthony Kennedy said in the, in the gay marriage case. That's the beauty. We can, you can never undiscover them. Our side will never overturn them. They'll just be slower in expanding them than the left would if they would get in. That's the only difference. They're never going to categorically overturn them. And while this particular right the Supreme Court might not bite at, I mean, agree to, but inevitably they do. If they don't win now, they'll win it in three years. What do you think Obergefell and Roe are? It wasn't like, oh, they uh, won, like we never won. We won a number of cases. We won for decades on it. But what the, the, the harm of allowing these lower court decisions to be legitimized and abided by before they go to the Supreme Court is it creates a legal policy and political momentum. It creates a legal momentum because it's just in the, in the profession. It's like, you did what? You created this? That's nuts. But once you did it already, once you jumped in the hot bath, it cools off. And then other courts do it. And then they do it in similar cases. That's what gay marriage was. It was insane. Everyone knew whatever you think about the policy and the morals and whatever, legally there's no way you could say the constitution mandates that states must redefine marriage. That's a political question. Everyone knew that. The Supreme Court, even the liberals, were too embarrassed to do it because it was so absurd. So their forward advancing guard is the lower courts, and they keep doing it and keep doing it. And eventually what happens is the four liberals are ready, and then like Roberts and these guys, they're going to be like, "Eh, I don't know, and they're going to start letting it in. And they've already let it in on so many fronts. Politically – When you allow these injunctions from lower courts, even when they eventually get overturned, to uh, go through and be legitimized, it creates a constituency around it. So that creates the political power. So then that, again, further pressures other courts and eventually pressures the Supreme Court because they're not a bunch of legal, you know, machines. They're all political. It's all the politics. This is the civil rights of our time, according to the left. It's not about this statute or that statute. They are, they are making unlimited, unfettered, illegal, and legal immigration of all sorts a civil right. What I am telling you guys, the way we're going now, we will not stop that. And if you don't stop it, there's nothing left to fight for. And again, that same modus operandi will be done on any fiscal and social issue anyway that's not immigration as well. And it's being done. That's the lesson to learn from this case and everything that's going on here. This is what we're all missing. 
Imagine the perfect system they've created. You know, let me let me let me explain further how their their game works. They build off of each breach, each each hole, each bastardization, each warping of our constitution. They kill and kill and kill, and then they build on each breach. So once I create this constitutional right, now I can build a secondary one on top of it. What the court said was this. They said, look, you had the famous Bomadine decision, Bomadine v. Bush. Another beauty of Anthony Kennedy and the four other liberals where they uh, created a right that when we capture enemy combatants on the field, imagine that. Enemy combatants on the field in war brought them to Guantanamo Bay. They have a constitutional right to habeas corpus. Okay? Constitutional right to habeas corpus. That was the whole thing. And they get access not to a military tribunal. They must be put in front of a judge, a federal U.S. judge. They have access to our courts. You know, Justice Scalia... See, this is this is the problem. Too many of our people get too into the weeds. Mm, they start beard stroking. Well, I don't know. Let's see what the case law says. Do we have the right to be a nation or do we not? And I always tell you what Scalia did. Scalia was like me. I, I mean, I, I don't mean to. I'm trying to follow in his footsteps. Uh, you know, I don't mean to say I'm on his his level. The opposite. Um. But I'm trying to say he had the same mentality that he he was the frog that jumped out of the boiling water. He was like, are you kidding me? Before he would get into the legalese brilliantly as he always would, he would speak philosophically. And he would say, he said, he, this is what he said in the case of Bomadine. He said, today, for the first time in our nation's history, the court confers a constitutional right to habeas corpus on alien enemies detained abroad by our military forces in the course of an ongoing war. The Chief Justice's dissent, which I joined, shows that the procedures prescribed by Congress and the Detaining Treatment Act provide the essential protections, yada, yada. My problem with today's opinion is more fundamental still. Notice notice, what, uh, Roberts gave the main dissent, but notice Roberts like thumb sucks. Scalia's like, there's something more fundamental. The writ of habeas corpus does not and never has run in favor of aliens abroad. The suspension clause thus has no application, and the court's intervention in this military matter is entirely ultra-virus. Right? Is it entirely ultra-virus means beyond one's legal authority, meaning it's a way of saying you have abused your authority and you're full of garbage. It's a Latin legal term for that. And I'm not going to read his opinion, but I'm just going to go through what he said at the end. Today the, today, the court warps our Constitution in a way that goes beyond the narrow issue of the reach of the suspension clause. Invoking judicially brainstormed separation of powers principles to establish a manipulable functional test for the extraterritorial reach of habeas corpus, and no doubt for the extraterritorial reach of other constitutional protections as well. Note, notice the beauty of every clause. He, he, he knows their game. It blatantly misprescribes important procedures, yada, yada. 
Um, most tragically, it sets our military commanders the impossible task of proving in a, to a civilian court under whatever standards this court devises in the future. The evidence supports the confinement of each and every enemy prisoner. He famously concluded the nation will live to regret what the court has done today. And I'll tell you, all the libertarian thumbsuckers, all the, the right, the people picking the – they actually love Bomadine. Hi, liberty, liberty. You see, you, see, you see the problem when you create too much bogus liberty? It infringes upon our liberty. But I will tell you, other than, than maybe Thomas and Alito, nobody will ever overturn that case. And this is not even like Roe from 1973 with tremendous case law built upon it. This is relatively new. What we've built in 200 years, they could demolish. But once they demolish, that I want you to internalize. If there's one thing on the courts you learn from me, I want it to be that principle, the one directional ratchet. We have agreed to that. That is why you could tell me Trump's all appointing all these judges. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Now, to bring it back to this case, so you guys could understand. So what the courts did today was build another breach on top of that. So they were trying to say, look, we're this is what the Supreme Court said this in Bomadine. Now, those of you who are, you know, smart or if you're kind of just involved in law, you'll quickly understand the big difference. One was creating rights in the criminal or war. I mean, this is even more cuz that was a war context. Um what were we trying to do to Bomadine? We were indefinitely detaining him without a court. We're just – we're locking him up forever. Here, we're not locking him up. We want to get rid of him. Get out of here. You're free. Have a good life. Do what you want. Leave us alone. We are merely exerting our sovereignty. Its deportation is not a criminal punishment. It's an extension of sovereignty. But what the courts have done and what Gorsuch agreed to, by the way, in one instance, at least, we'll see if he extends it to here. And many of these Republican judges, I fear, are agreeing to this premise that deportation is a punishment. And therefore, we have no sovereignty. That's the difference. Now, in in Bomadine, it it was egregious because even without immigration context just detention he's an enemy combatant so that's that's bs so he so yeah we could indefinitely detain him now in the context of coming here on our soil yeah i'm not going to say you can indefinitely detain him we don't want to indefinitely detain him. that's not what we're talking about for example if you come here and you an illegal but then you like i don't know you do a crime you um commit assault robbery and we don't want to just deport you. Before we deport you, we want to prosecute you and potentially lock you up for 10 years. Yeah, then you're entitled to criminal tr- proceedings, a trial, and, and due process, and and you know everything that comes with that. Um, but that's not what we're talking about here. This is to merely say, get off my lawn. Once you apply it here, every other deportation where, where Congress – Denied them access to the courts, they're going to have endless appeals. I haven't even thought through the granular consequences of this. This is why President Trump has no choice but to go in front of the American people 
and say, this is getting out of hand. I'm not suggesting that you go after the Supreme Court. Just the opposite. I'm suggesting you pick a couple cases and say, this is causing irreparable harm to the country. This is not what statute says. This is not what the Supreme Court said. We all know this is an insidious game that if you would have gone to a different judge, they would have never issued such an opinion. They form shopped it. Universal junctions, injunctions themselves are unconstitutional. Clarence Thomas said so. I will follow the law until and unless the Supreme Court gets involved. That is the way – see, the strategic value of that is by – What's going to happen? Then the other side's going to be forced to take him to court and appeal and say, hey, he's not following. That's the point. That's going to force – the problem now is with the administration being so obsequious to every whim and sometimes even more than what they demand, it takes the issue off the table so Roberts doesn't feel an urgency – because he doesn't want to bring up the case, he doesn't feel an urgency. Trump needs to create an urgency. You see what I'm saying? God forbid should we go against the Lord, the Supreme Court. I'm not even suggesting that. I'm not suggesting you're, you could you know, w- run without walking. Just go after some of the most egregious immigration opinions that clearly violate statute. This is a beautiful case because – there's there's no – because Congress said they can't hear the case. It's not just that they got it wrong. They're creating – Trump could say we either have a country or we don't. This is not hard to explain. And that will solve the border issue. It all gets back to the courts. It's a court issue. The fence cannot solve it. That's once we stop self-immolating as a nation with this and we don't have the magnets of lawfare and it's just then the traditional illegal immigrants and criminal activity to get in um, clandestinely, you know, surreptitiously to try to avoid the Border Patrol. So then, of course, then a border wall is one of the many tools that is a force multiplier and helps us apprehend and interdict and deter. And then so that if we do interdict them, then we just return them and throw them out. But if they get to stay, and they know they get to stay, then they're just going to surrender themselves. And it's so much to the point that we even come to the other side of the wall and pick them up. Every word of this um, of this show is vital. It's one of the most important shows we've done. It relates to everything that's important in our country now and our future. Because again, you could apply this to every other sphere, election law, sexuality, affirmative action, everything they do. I I just gave you a case study of one area of law of what they do, creating new constitutional rights and how they get away with it politically, legally. It's such a deep thing. I could talk for hours on end how they've succeeded in doing it and how our side has legitimized it and and greased the skids for them to do what they do. But I'm just going to end with this. You know, if you're you're sitting on a bench, uh, you know, picture a, a you know one of these uh, scenic overlooks, nice canyons and mountains. Sometimes they have benches uh, if they're in parks or whatever. 
you're sitting on a bench near the near the cliff, and um, kind of the big guy that looks looks stronger than you comes on and just like you know shoves you off the bench. Now it's really not right what he did. It's, it's terrible, but you know he, I just I, I just don't want to fight him. I, I, I is it really worth it? I'm scared. I don't I don't know if I could win. Um, I, I'll move over. And then he comes and he shoves you again, and he shoves you again, and he shoves you again, and he shoves you to the point that you are one step away from the cliff. Do you say, well, uh, you know, what do you do? Uh, the, the court said, uh, there's nothing I can do. I, I, it's terrible. The, the, the court. Uh, Dan, Daniel, are you saying I shouldn't listen to the court? Or in my analogy, are you saying, are you saying I should fight him? I, 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 that's how stupid some of you are. And I don't mean you, but telling me, Daniel, but the court, you're, you're saying Trump should just not listen to a court? It, it's not not listening to a court. They're not listening to the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, statute, case law, Supreme Court. At some, there is no other choice. I promise you this. I promise you this. If we do not do what I am suggesting, we will never, ever stop this issue and it will intensify Every single year, commensurate, not with conditions of violence in their home countries, but with the magnets created by each and every court decision that whittles away another leg, another arm of our culture, our sovereignty, our traditions, our laws, our right to self-determination. We're going to have a lot more on some of the stuff I didn't get a chance to go to next week. I'm really proud we were I was able to find time to do all five days. And, and really, I mean, these are some very long shows, packed in a lot of material. We have a lot of good articles. I have an article out today on how the flow of just one year of migration is going to cost us $150 billion to care for these people on net in terms of their drain on society for the lifetime of these people. And that is a very, that's just the things you could quantify and some sort of, using the National Academy of Science, their methodology of calculating that um, based on Stephen Camerata's work at Center for Immigration Studies, it's really likely much higher than that. That is what's at stake. I'm going to end with a quote from Scalia I've used before that really brings out what I think so many are missing in the political context, in the legal context, that doesn't allow them to see what I see, to see what so many of you see, that doesn't allow them to recognize that their barometer, their thermometer is broken, their their metric of who's winning in society and what we're even focusing on as a cons- as conservatives is so vacuous, worthless, and often counterintuitive. And how we, we we just legitimize 
so many things that are so just insane. And we don't see the, the trees from the forest. We don't recognize that putting aside legal case law and statutes, we're missing the point. If the Constitution itself, I mean, this is not Scalia, I'm still talking here. <laughs> if the Constitution itself, for whatever reason, said, any person who ever comes to this country has a right to come here, has a right to drop a baby and forcibly take citizenship from the American people, has the right to be counted in the census, has the right to welfare, has the right to everything, and there's not a darn thing we can do about it. Even if that were the case, this would be the appropriate time to apply the fact that you're hyper-focusing on one thing to therefore vitiate every other part of the Constitution and your entire nationhood. This is where Justice Robert Jackson said in his famous case, 1949, dealing with an American legitimate First Amendment freedom of speech inciting violence in Chicago, that you come to a point where you make our Constitution a suicide pact. You would, you would say that. You would have that philosophy. You would do everything you can not to take this for granted. How much more so when the laws, our history, our constitution, our case law say just the opposite in every one of these cases? One of the things the courts have done, one of the egregious things they've done with social transformation over the years is jailbreak, is mandating all sorts of ways that prevent us from dealing with criminals and locking them up. One by one, they're stripping from states the power to over criminal justice. In Brown v. Plata, May 23rd, 2011, the court just, with the flick of the wrist, I mean, it was a district judge actually in that case, and the court uh, upheld it. It was another stink bomb from Anthony Kennedy, mandated that California release 46,000 convicted criminals because they had, they claimed it was overcrowding, and because it's crowded, it was cruel and unusual punishment. Scalia said the following. To the, to, today the court affirms what is perhaps the most radical injunction issued by a court in our nation's history in order requiring California to release the staggering number of 46,000 convicted criminals. There comes before us now and then a case whose proper outcome is so clearly indicated by tradition and common sense that its decision ought to shape the law rather than vice versa. One would think that before allowing the decree of a federal district court to release 46,000 convicted felons, this court would bend every effort to read the law in such a way as to avoid that outrageous result. Today, quite to the contrary, the court disregards stringently drawn provisions of the governing statute and traditional constitutional limitations upon the power of a federal judge in order to uphold the absurd. The proceedings that led to this result were a judicial tra travesty. I dissent because the institutional reform the district court has undertaken violates the terms 
of the government governing statute, ignores bedrock limitations of the power of Article Three judges, and takes federal courts wildly beyond their institutional capacity. I cry inside of me that the Lord took from us Justice Scalia because while, while Thomas is equally as great in many ways, and sometimes he has his stronger suits that he's even better than Scalia, but Scalia's strong suit was the way he spoke to common sense. Um, and I would have loved to have seen him in all these immigration cases that came up because it started right after he died. And this is exactly what he would say in all these cases times 10. He, I, I predict because he was calling for a revolution. That's why I wrote my book. I believe he wanted me to write that book. I believe that's what he wanted. He wanted people to do what I'm doing. He was signaling to people, you don't understand how bad it's going to get. I believe he would have openly said this court has no, no more legitimacy anymore. But think about it. Our side, you know, you would think, l- l- let's read the statute, the Constitution. Let's find some conceivable way. Okay, you want to say birthright citizenship? Come on. One Kim Ark clearly said you have to be domiciled. That clearly you have to have permission, permission to be here. There's so many avenues to say that it shouldn't apply. And yet the courts bend it to find every way to only get the absurd outcome. Our side won't even be willing to hold the ground on the straight and narrow to avoid catastrophic political results that build and compound each other forever. I hope this show was was worthwhile to you guys. I hope you've gained from it. I know I've certainly found it to be cathartic and releasing the tension building up in me. Let's pray that God instills some of our colleagues, political leaders, People who have platforms, people who have venues that they can influence information dissemination, that they will see the light and be guided with the strength, the determination, the resourcefulness, and the acumen to take back this great country, to take back our constitution from this bloodless revolution that is succeeding beyond our wildest imaginations. God bless you all. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great weekend.